Section 12 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Midland, Oakland, California. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 9, Part 1. The Tavern Keeper's Daughter. It may not be inexpedient to pause for a moment to consider the general character of the period through which the romantic story of the Empresses is hurrying us. The reader may learn with some astonishment that we are now, in the tenth century, in the golden age of Byzantine history, or that, at least, the Roman Empire in the East has nearly returned to the altitude it had reached in the days of Justinian and Theodora. It is not a part of a biographer's duty to enlarge on historical themes, and the somewhat slender thread which he pursues through the web of history may lead to erroneous conclusions. Precisely on that account, however, it seems advisable to say a word in correction of the prejudice which the restricted study of one set of characters may create. It shall be brief. The truth, in regard to the Byzantine Empire, seems to lie between the disdain of older historians like Gibbon and Finlay, and the exaggerated claims made for it by some recent writers. I speak of character only, not of art or industry or military success. In some respects, in regard to unnatural vice, for instance, it is superior to the older empire of the West. In ordinary licentiousness, it has no superiority whatever, and the aesthetic code it so pompously boasts only makes its guilt the greater, while there are persistent strains of coarseness in its character which tempt one to characterize it as barbaric. Castration and the excision of eyes continue for many centuries under almost every emperor and empress, ordinary punishments of political offense and the constant violation of the most terrible oaths that the clergy can devise, the abominable device for filling the priesthood and the monastic world with reputed criminals, the unceasing intrigues of eunuchs and officers, the sanguinary coercion of heretics, the persistent financial and administrative corruption, and the lamentable casuistry of priests and religious women betray a new and general type of character which no amount of appreciation of Byzantine art can restore to honor. The 400 years of Byzantine history that we have traversed, compared with the 400 years which preceded them in Roman history, show no elevation of the type of womanhood, nor will the four centuries that remain compel us to alter this conclusion. The young Empress Helena daughter of Romanus, whom we introduced at the close of the last chapter, is imperfectly but not favorably known to us. Beautiful and intelligent, she found no occasion to assert herself as long as her father lived. That unscrupulous commander had very quickly found a way to gratify his personal ambition without violating the letter of his solemn oaths. He had, in March, sworn on the wood of the true cross to be loyal to Constantine. In September of the same year, he received, or obtained, the dignity of Caesar, and three months later he was co-emperor. In the following January, he made his wife Theodora empress, 
and in May, he conferred imperial rank on his son Christopher and his wife Sophia. Later he gave the purple to his two remaining sons, and destined his fourth son, Theophylactus, for the Patriarchate. Further, in order to prevent plots which were frequent, he put his own name before that of Constantine, and arrogated the whole work of administration. He lived in the largest, latest, and most superb palace of the imperial town, the golden-roofed Chrysotriclinon, and, plebeian as he was by birth, carried the pageantry and ceremonial of the court to its highest point. His wife, Theodora, did not long survive her elevation, and Helena seems to have taken the chief place as empress in the glittering crowd. But she escapes our scrutiny altogether until the close of the twenty-five years' reign of her father. Romanus seems in his later years to have shown symptoms of remorse and made edifying preparation for death. His philanthropy and religious fervor alarmed his sons, who concluded, apparently, that if his repentance were carried too far, they might lose their purple robes. The eldest son, Christopher, had died, and the youngest, Theophylactus, was quite happy in possession of the patriarchate. He had, it seemed to the pious, turned the cathedral into a theater, and the bishop's house into a place of debauch, and his religious duties were so far postponed to the cares of his stable of two thousand horses that he would cut a ceremony short when a groom came to the altar to whisper that a favorite mare had foaled. There remained Stephen and Constantine, whose royal position seemed to be threatened. Stephen, with the consent of his brother, deposed his father at the end of 944, and sent him into a monastery on the prince's islands. Helena was the chief inspirer of the next intrigue. Constantine Porphyrogenitus had sought consolation in art and letters for the imperial power of which he had been defrauded. He was now a tall, straight, well-made man of thirty-nine, with mild blue eyes and fresh, ruddy countenance, but he had little faculty or disposition for politics, and was more interested in the pleasures of the table and the library. His attainments in art and science would have been respectable in any other than a king. Helena, however, supplied the resolution he lacked, and watched the procedure of her brothers. She concluded that they intended to displace or ignore her husband, and she stimulated him to action, or, more probably, acted herself with the aid of her head chamberlain Basil, an illegitimate son of Romanus. On the evening of 27th January, the royal brothers were invited to sup with their mild-mannered and long-suffering colleague, and they found themselves dragged from their purple couches by his servants, bound, and put aboard a waiting vessel at the palace quay. Some of the authorities improbably state that they asked permission to visit their father Romanus in his monastery, so that Gibbon's genial picture of the father cynically greeting his sons at the shore is not without foundation. The story is unlikely, however, and they were soon dispatched to remote parts. During the fifteen years' reign of her husband, Helena is known to us only for the unscrupulousness with which, in collusion with the head chamberlain Basil, she sold offices of state to the highest bidders. The interest passes to the new and singular types of empresses who now enter the chronicles. The first is the most pathetic and remarkable figure in the whole strange gallery of the Byzantine empresses. 
Helena and Constantine had a son named Romanus, and the elder Romanus, who was most assiduous at making royal matches for his descendants, had decided to marry the boy in good time. It seems not unlikely that, in his last year of life, he realized the unscrupulousness of his sons and entertained a tardy concern about his oath. At that time, the kingdom of Italy was ruled by Hugh, a violent and half-barbaric monarch whose conjugal arrangements were calculated to furnish a rich supply of royal alliances. Romanus sent an envoy to ask the hand of one of his natural daughters, and the little Bertha, a beautiful child of tender years, was conducted to Constantinople by the Bishop of Parma and married to the boy emperor. Romanus was five years old, and it is not likely that Bertha, or Eudocia, as she was now named, was older than he. What type of woman the little princess, offspring of a wild Teuton and his concubine, would have made, we shall never know, for she died five years afterwards. The chroniclers are careful to add that she died a virgin. The young prince was allowed to grow and develop his vices for a few years before contracting a second marriage. It seems to have been in his eighteenth year that he took his second wife, and his choice illustrates at once the supineness of his father, the selfishness of his mother, and the unrestrained passion of the son. He married Anastaso, the daughter of a tavern-keeper named Craterus. We have seen so many types of empresses ascend the throne that it might cause us little surprise to find a woman passing from the counter of a wine-shop to the palace, but there is grave suspicion that Theophano, the name substituted for Anastaso, was base in more than the genealogical sense of the word. She is accused of poisoning her father-in-law and her first husband, and she certainly led the assassins to the chamber of her second husband. Whatever allowance we make for the prejudice against her humble birth, authentic facts in her story show that she was licentious and criminal. We do not know how the son of a highly cultivated emperor made the acquaintance of a tavern girl. It is clear that she was a young woman of singular beauty, a kind of miracle of nature, Zonaris says, the most graceful figure, and I would conjecture that some courtier among the disreputable followers of the young prince brought her to his notice. There may have been a beauty show, and the publican may have boldly pressed the merits of his daughter, but some attention was generally paid to birth in these matrimonial contests. A tavern woman was still held to be equivalent to a prostitute or an actress. It is useless to speculate. Constantine idly acquiesced, and the beautiful Theophano passed from the sordid scenes of a little wine-shop to the wonderful splendors of the palace. Courtly writers afterwards discovered that there was royal blood in her veins. The only serious clue we have to her origin is that she came from Laconia, and we may regard her as a common type of Greek. It is calculated that the marriage took place about the end of the year 956. For three years no events occurred that enable us to penetrate the secluded life of the palace, though the subsequent events suggest that Helena and her daughters were disdainful of the vulgar beauty, and were met with a virulent hatred. At the end of three years, August or September 959, Constantine died, and the ampler chronicles tell a circumstantial story of 
his being poisoned by his son Romanus and Theophano. A poison was, it is said, put in his physic. Either by accident or from suspicion, he spilled most of the contents of the cup and escaped death, but his health was gravely impaired. He went to visit the monasteries of Mount Olympus, fell dangerously ill there. The chronicler says that perhaps more poison was administered and was brought back to the palace to die. We must regard this charge of poisoning as probably a construction put on his illness by the officials or people of Constantinople. It may or may not be true. We have no right to conclude at once that it is an historical fact, but it seems to me that some recent historians have just as little right to reject it as improbable. Romanus was a licentious and unscrupulous man carrying his father's amiable weakness for wine to the pitch of debauch and ruining his constitution by vice. Theophano, we shall see, was capable of murder, and her ambition would most certainly lead her to wish the older imperial family out of the way. On the other hand, there would be a prejudice against her in Constantinople and in the mind of later writers and we must leave this first charge against her what it is in the Chronicles, a suspicion. Her next step was to get rid of the sisters of Romanus. Helena and her five daughters still lived in the palace, or in one out of the great cluster of palaces. There were now at least eight palaces, connected by superb colonnades or separated by choice gardens and terraces in the vast imperial domain between the Hippodrome and the Sea of Marmara. There were, in addition, several palaces on the Asiatic coast, and the palace at Blackernay, in the cool, hilly district to the north, had, in turn, become a vast cluster of palaces, chapels, colonnades, and terraced gardens. The mother and sisters of Romanus could therefore find ample hospitality without being compelled to witness the daily dissipation of the emperor, his drunken banquets, and his troops of lascivious actors and women, but they frowned on the kind of court over which Theophano presided, and she persuaded her husband to remove them. He bade his five sisters adopt the monastic life. Theophano now had two sons and a daughter, and would feel safer if their royal aunts were prevented from making aristocratic marriages. The young women were, however, not at all disposed to embrace a religious life, and there were furious scenes at the palace. They were removed to the monastery into which the palace of Theodora's minister, Theoclistus, had been converted near the Hippodrome, but they seem still to have intrigued and were separated and transferred to other monasteries. Romanus was not cruel or malignant. His temper was to live and let live, provided that no check was placed on his imperial pleasures. He merely smiled, therefore, when he heard that, in their convents, his sisters refused to exchange their silks for the hated black robe, or abstain from the delicate meats to which they had been accustomed. We shall later find one of them coming out, in spite of her vows, to marry an emperor, to the intense mortification of Theophano, who had murdered her husband to marry him herself. Helena was the chief sufferer. She sank into melancholy and illness after the departure of her daughters, and died in September 961. The emperor continued for two years to enjoy his pleasures and hasten his death, 
leaving the care of the empire to his very capable ministers and officers. Amongst those officers was a very singular commander named Nisophorus Phocas, whose romantic career still puzzles historians. Whether he was a profound hypocrite or a deeply religious man fascinated and seduced by Theophano, it is difficult to determine. God only knows, says Leo the Deacon, a chronicler of the time to whom we owe most of our knowledge. Nisephorus was a very able general of about fifty years, a dark, robust little man with black hair and small dark eyes under thick eyebrows, a very stern look, and the chest and arms of a Hercules. He was not at all handsome, but he was one of the greatest soldiers of his time. The singular feature about his life was that, in consequence of a tragic accident of earlier years, he had adopted a very religious and ascetic life. He wore a hair shirt under his armor and linen, abstained from flesh and women as rigidly as a monk, and was understood to have vowed chastity. It appears that as her husband sickened, Theophano set out to seduce this remarkable soldier monk and succeeded. The other great power in the state was Joseph Bringus, the leading civilian and statesman. But Joseph was a eunuch and of no use to Theophano. She would marry Nicephorus. Leo the deacon says that she admitted, or drew, the ascetic to her arms before the death of her husband, and it is not impossible, as the chief biographer of Nicephorus admits. However that may be, Romanus died in 963 after a giddy reign of four years at the age of 24. Once more Theophano is charged with poisoning, and once more we must refrain from pressing the charge. The nearest authority, Leo the deacon, leaves it an open question whether Romanus died of poison or had closed his own life prematurely by debauch, and we may do the same. Historians are too apt to conclude that, because Romanus did wear himself out by his excesses, we may dismiss the charge against Theophano. Disease, on the contrary, would furnish a cloak to an artful poisoner, and Theophano certainly wished to get rid of the despotic eunuch Bringus, whom Nisophorus would quickly displace. The chief reason why we must hesitate is because Theophano was prostrate at the time and unable to master the new situation. She had given birth to a second daughter two days before the death of Romanus, and there is reason to think that Bringus and others were anxious to remove her from power. The circumstance is not decisive, as her servants might carry out a plan made at an earlier date. As soon as Theophano recovered, she entered upon the struggle with Bringus. It seems, from the movements of Nicephorus, that the empress was in communication with him before the death of Romanus, and that at least she sent him a secret and flattering message when Romanus died. Nicephorus had disbanded the army with which he had conducted two brilliant campaigns against the Saracens, and was little equipped to contest the power of Bringus, but he went at once to the city in order to be near Theophano. Bringus had made desperate efforts to keep him away, even going so far as to propose in the council that the general's eyes should be put out for his treasonable ambition. His great victory over the Saracens and his repute for sanctity had, however, won a large body of admirers for Nicephorus, 
and when he entered the city in triumph, driving before his car groups of Saracen prisoners and exhibiting the holy relics he had rescued from the hands of the heathen, citizens and soldiers and priests united in acclaiming him. A private conversation with the new patriarch Polyustes, a fanatical monk and eunuch, secured the favor of that prelate and his clergy, and it is even said that he ventured into the house of Bringus and revealed to that cautious statesman the hair shirt which he wore below his fine robes and the monastic heart that beat beneath it. But for his intense devotion to the young princess, he said, he would at once retire into a monastery. If we can believe this last statement, the situation is not without humor, because Bringus presently discovered that his pious rival was being surreptitiously admitted to the empress's apartments. Whether it is true or no that Nicephorus had previously been intimate with her, it is certain that he now became infatuated with Theophano and received an assurance that she would marry him, if not more intimate pledges of her love. We may be confident that Theophano did not love him. He was not physically attractive to her sensual taste, and his incongruous mixture of piety and passion and deceit must have excited her disdain. He was merely the best instrument at hand for the achievement of her ambition. Then, as I said, Bringus discovered the secret meetings and renewed his attack. He invited Nicephorus to the palace. The gallant but prudent soldier preferred to fly to the altar of St. Sophia and secure the protection of the patriarch. The Senate was convoked, the prelate warmly espoused the cause of Nicephorus, and he departed in honor to take supreme command of the army in Asia and await the orders of Theophano. The next move of Bringus was a blunder and the beginning of his downfall. One of Nicephorus's chief officers was his nephew, John Zemiscus, the later emperor. When we find Zemiscus murdering his uncle with the aid of Theophano and then callously repudiating her, we shall not suppose him to be a man of tender conscience, and Bringus, no doubt, regarded him as venal. He sent a secret messenger to offer Zemiscus the supreme command if he would send his uncle in bonds to Constantinople. Zemiscus calculated that he would have the command in any case if his uncle became emperor, and he showed the letter to Nicephorus and urged him to assume the purple. They went to Caesarea at the time, and from that city Bringus soon learned that Nicephorus had accepted the title of emperor and would march on Constantinople. End of section 12 Recording by Nancy Midland, Oakland, California.